you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 49 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And you will recall we had a fascinating interview with Dublin MEP Barry Andrews last week. And he gave us a kind of a bit of a whistle-stop tour of the realities of life in the European Parliament and also how his background as a barrister. He was one of us once upon a time, Mark. Was, uh, how that plays out in his work as an MEP. I really enjoyed that interview. And I think what was particularly interesting is the way that he's been able to kind of get involved in legislation on, you know, things like modern slavery, you know, the forced labour issue. And, you know, people in Ireland simply don't pay much attention to the day-to-day issues in the European Parliament or those sort of debates. And I think it's very important that he highlights them. And he distinguished between what happens in the European Parliament and the kind of knockabout carry-on we have in the Dáil. I mean, don't underestimate the value of a good committee. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, today we welcome back a great friend of the show, Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan. This may be episode 49 of the series, but right back at the start, we recorded episode one and he was our guest when we talked about the 1922 Constitution and its continued relevance in, in Irish law all these years on. Well, today he is going to be talking about one of the great decisions in the 100-year history of the Irish Supreme Court. It is 100 years old, the Irish Supreme Court, next year. And that, of course, is the case of McGee and the Attorney General. And that was a decision made by the Supreme Court on the 19th of December, 1973. It concerned a 27-year-old woman and she was a mother of four and she said she couldn't have any more children and she wanted to import contraception. And the Supreme Court came out with a decision, I think, which surprised many. Absolutely, yeah, as we'll be discussing, but it was a very far-reaching decision. It concerns the uh, unenumerated or unspecified personal rights in the Constitution and um, and it paved the way for a lot of other important decisions. Yeah, no, really significant. Okay, but before we get to all that, we're going to have three cases that you have identified from the Decisis website. And these three cases all have a common theme, Mark, a Norwich Pharmacal Order. Now, you're going to have to tell our listeners what that is. So a Norwich Pharmacal Order, the name derives from a UK case that has been followed here, is where you know that you've been the victim of wrongdoing, but you don't know who the wrongdoer is. And um, it has gained new life in recent years, largely by reason of the expansion of social media, because it's very easy for people to have anonymous accounts where they will libel somebody um, or defame somebody. And um, so applications are quite commonly made now to social media platforms to reveal the... Exactly, to reveal the identity of the person who has um, committed the defamation. Okay, brilliantly explained. Okay, let's let's go through the three cases Mm. which involve Norwich Pharmacal Orders. So Mark, the first of the cases we're looking at today concerns a claim by the ESB and they were looking for information about payments that were wrongfully made to some of its employees. The ESB said it was necessary to have this information in order to bring the proceedings against the alleged wrongdoers. Now, this is the case of ESB versus Richmond Homes and it's a judgment of Mr. Justice uh, Conor Dignam in the High Court. That's right. So what happened here was that a developer claimed that certain people, either ESB employees or people purporting to be ESB employees, were looking for certain payments 
in order to carry out works or to expedite certain works. And these appear to have been payments that were completely unauthorised by their employers, the ESB. So in order to find out who the wrongdoers were, so the ESB obviously, you know, were very concerned that people were effectively kind of undermining their work. They wanted to get details that would reveal who the wrongdoers were, who, who was accepting these payments. And so they, they brought an application to the High Court and so basically what Mr. Justice Dignam said was that it was necessary for the ESB to have this information in order to bring proceedings against the wrongdoers. And the, the jurisdiction, and this is the important point, was that it wasn't just to do with the identity of the wrongdoer. It was also to do with the uh, defendant or the, the respondent in this application revealing the date and amount of each payment. They claimed they didn't mind revealing the identity of the wrongdoer, but they were resisting the details of the payments. And yes. what Mr. Justice Dignam said was... That's all bound up in the same wrongdoing. Absolutely. And obviously the so, ESB is entitled to that and would have been entitled to by way of third party discovery, if you think about it. In the, yeah, in, yeah, well, that would be the traditional way of going for yeah. that sort of information. Yeah, OK. So the second case we're, we're dealing with today concerns allegations of revenge porn. In this case, Digital Rights Ireland, acting as a representative body, sought disclosure to identify the appropriate defendants who are based in the Netherlands, I believe. Two questions arose. First one was, was digital rights themselves entitled to bring a claim, they being a, a representative body and not the individual who was the victim of revenge porn? And the second was, were they entitled to identify the appropriate defendants? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting case because traditionally in Ireland, we haven't really had what we call class actions. And so here we have a class action that's brought under European law because this is an application that was brought under the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. And so that allows for representative bodies. So Digital Rights Ireland, who have been involved in various litigation, brought this application on behalf of six women who claimed that they were victims of revenge porn, which seems to be a rather broadly used term. But basically, it was sexual images of them that they had not consented to being placed online. And so the application was made for an order against the data controller for information as to to who had released this information online and Digital Rights Island was entitled, according to Mr. Justice O'Moore, to these orders in order that the relevant people could prosecute that their claims. That's a hugely significant decision. A huge decision. Hugely yeah. significant yeah. decision. And you know, that's important going forward, actually, and that'll move things on in relation to yeah. that area of claim. Okay, finally, we have a Court of Appeal decision where information concerning potential wrongdoing was held by the Gardaí. This is the case of Blyde versus the Commissioner of Angartha Shia Corner, and the decision was given by Mr Justice Collins, who was then in the Court of Appeal, I think he's now in the Supreme Court, but it concerned a former Garda who was seeking an order directing the Commissioner of Angartha Shia Corner to disclose material that might identify members of the Gardaí who had circulated potentially defamatory information about him, pictures on WhatsApp, that sort of stuff, and he yeah. wanted to find out who these were. He said, the Garda Commissioner knows this, tell me. Yeah, but it's kind of curious, I mean, as you might say yourself, Peter, you Wait for one Norwich Pharmacal order, judgment, and three come along at once. So the two that we've just mentioned in the High Court were followed then by this decision in the Court of Appeal. So, as you said, I don't think there's anything particularly controversial about the individual case, because clearly this is an example of somebody who's clearly the victim of wrongdoing and the Guardi were in possession of certain information. The curious issue here was that it took some time for the Guardi to admit that they didn't actually have the information that this individual was, was looking for. And so it went to the Court of Appeal and the Guardi tried to argue that the issue was moot. And Mr Justice Collins said, no, it's not moot because 
the point was raised, you know, effectively the, the, the case had to be brought, but he went further and effectively restated the test for a Norwich Pharmacal Order. And essentially the issue here, and this is a very simplistic way of putting it, but in the UK, when you're looking for a Norwich Pharmacal Order, you need to have an arguable case. And what Mr. Justice Collins said in the Court of Appeal here was that you need to have a strong case. So effectively, you can't look for a Norwich Pharmacal Order on a kind of fishing expedition. You need to show that you are the victim of wrongdoing. Yes. There's a very strong case of success. Is it a success. slight role back then, is it? I, I don't the, think the other it, decisions? No, I think he was effectively affirming what the, the law already was here, but he was just restating it. Tightening saying, it up a little tight, bit. Tightening it in the sense that, you know, obviously people are likely to be looking for these orders a lot more in the future than they have in the past. And what he's saying is, you need to show that you you have a case that is very likely to succeed. I think I'd prefer if it was an arguable test rather than a strong test. But anyway, a strong case. But that's it. Thank you, Mark. Brilliantly explained. I think all our listeners now know what an Norwich Pharmacal order is. Okay, back shortly with Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan. Silence in the fifth court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the show yet again a great friend of the show, Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan. As you know, we are about to celebrate a special birthday for ourselves, I suppose. We're almost coming up to 50 shows. And right when we did our very first show, who was our first guest? It was your good self. Mark, I often use the, the Orson Welles line. We started at the top mm-hmm. and worked our way down. I think maybe that, that, that might, be, <coughs> might be relevant here today. But thank you very much for coming back into us well, again. Well, Peter, it's a pleasure. And may I, on behalf of the entire legal community, congratulate you and thank you so much for all your efforts on behalf of what I'll call legal media. And you you have really set such a standard and we're all deeply grateful to you. Wow, we're blushing here. We're blushing here. Thank Thank you very much. Now, when you came in the last time, the first time we talked about the 1922 Constitution, then we talked about the centenary of the execution of Erskine Childers. And today we're talking about an anniversary. And as the Supreme Court gets ready next year to celebrate its centenary, 100 years of the Supreme Court, we're going to look back 50 years. Next month is the 50th anniversary of one of the great cases that was decided by the Supreme Court. I know you think it's up there, changed the course of Irish society. And it's very significant. And that's the case of McGee versus the Attorney General. Very significant case. And then there was later cases that sort of emerged in its slipstream. The Norris case we're going to talk about, maybe the X case as well. And then... 1973 was the year, obviously, in which McGee was decided. And across the water, we know there was a case called Roe versus Wade, which has some bears some relationship to some of the cases we're talking about domestically. And we're going to, going to go into that. And I think, folks, we're going to get two shows out of this. So this interview is going to go on. So you're going to have to come back next week as well to hear the rest of this. So let's start with McGee. Huge decision, really important decision. But let's go back to the facts, Gerard. So we're talking about a 27-year-old woman in Skerries. OK, so you tell us about Mary McGee. Well, Mary McGee was a, a 20 27-year-old who had a very difficult pregnancy, uh, almost died as a result of toxemia with twins. And she'd been medically advised that it would be dangerous to have children again. And so she sought to import contraceptive jellies, yes. uh, which were then promptly confiscated by the uh, revenue commissioners, at which point she sued and uh, she sought 
to have Section 17 of the Criminal Law Amendment yes. Act of 1935 declared unconstitutional. She failed in the High Court, uh, in part before the President of the High Court, in part because Judge O'Keeve reasoned that the 1935 Act had been enacted contemporaneously with yes. the Constitution by the very same, it was the same Oireachtas, although the Shannon had been abolished between 1935 and 1937, but we'll call it just the same Oireachtas, uh, in the same part parliamentary sittings, if you like, uh, and therefore uh, nobody saw that this was unconstitutional or wrong at the time, and therefore he refused to find it unconstitutional. Now, there's a little story to that too, and I'll come back to it, but it went on appeal to the Supreme Court. And I think to the surprise of many, certainly, and maybe even the consternation of some, uh, the Supreme Court found in her favour 4-1 on the 19th of December 1973 and found that the uh, total prohibition on the importation of contraceptives found in Section 17 of the 1935 Act was unconstitutional. Okay, and will we go back to the High Court decision Mm. from the the President of the High Court at the time, Andreas O'Keeve, that thinking that, you know, the decision, the, the act that came in in 1935 was essentially the same parliament, the same Oireachtas mm. that ultimately passed the 1937 constitution. Mm. And you wrote a wonderful article, which I read in advance of this discussion. And you talk about that as being a bit of originalist thinking. Mm. In ter- we don't we normally see that in our um, American colleagues uh, yeah. across the Great Pond. But that, you know, this was the, the law was drafted at the same time as the Constitution and therefore the Constitution had to stick rigidly to the way the law was drafted on that particular occasion. Well, that's, as you say, Peter, that's a perspective that one more frequently associates with the uh, US Supreme Court where they go into great detail, and I mean sometimes minute detail, as to what the law and practice was, often in England, actually, in the late 18th century, in order to understand concepts that are contained in their own Bill of Rights. Or in the case of the post-Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments, they look at the situation, if you like, in antebellum United States in order to interpret what was intended by the great provisions of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, which deal with equality and due process and so on. So that's a strong feature of US jurisprudence. It's not really, I think, a particularly marked feature of Irish constitutional case law, possibly because of the way the constitution was drafted and was put to a referendum. Sure, a lot of the drafting papers have become available now and have been written about and so forth, but they weren't known to the public when they were voting on the constitution in July 1937. You know, we don't have anything the equivalent of the Federalist Papers, which were these public papers published by some of the the, the great constitution drafters in the United States that informed the thinking behind yes. the Bill of Rights and the US constitution. So we don't have that. So our tradition, I think, is more... Um, if I can use the term textualist rather than originalist, and by which I mean focusing on the text yes. of the Constitution, but interpreting that, you know, on the whole, um, in the present tense, uh, although not unmindful, and it is uh, of what happened in the past and, you know, where the path of the law has come from in interpreting the Constitution as well. So we get as far as the Supreme Court 
there has been a decision taken by the High Court. Mm. President of the High Court says no, the, the legislation drafted in 1935 is very clear. The revenue commissioners were correct in confiscating this contraceptive jelly. Mm. So it goes before the Supreme Court. Just can we put it into context? We have a little bit of time. 1973 is the year Ireland joined the EEC, as it was then. I mean, it was a very different Ireland to the Ireland of today. Completely. And it's very difficult to convey uh, to a younger generation just how different it was. I mean, this case is superficial similarities with a corresponding decision of the US Supreme Court called Griswold in Connecticut from 1965. And you'll find parallels between the reasoning of the majority in both cases and the reasoning of the minority in both cases. But there's one critical difference, which is you could easily overlook, which is that in Connecticut, the law was not enforced. It was the only state in the union that had an anti-contraceptive statute of this kind. And Part of the difficulty that uh, litigants seeking to challenge the Connecticut statute had was to actually get people to sue them and prosecute them so they could say, actually, I'm affected by this law and I want to challenge it. And it's interesting, one of the dissenters in Griswold, Potter Stewart, said famously, you know, he described the law as an uncommonly silly law, but he couldn't say, well, where's the provision of the US Constitution that can find it unconstitutional, but he described it as an uncommonly silly law. Now, nobody was saying that about McGee, no matter where you stood on it. I mean, this was a law which was rigorously enforced. Um, all right, you could say that change was in the air. Mary Robinson and the late Trevor West had introduced bills in the Shannon seeking to liberalise the law, but they met with very stiff resistance from the government of the day and they didn't even get a second reading in the Shannon. That just tells you something. And, you know, you had the contraceptive train from Belfast, but those contraceptives were confiscated. You yes, know? Yeah. So, so th we're not talking about a law unlike Connecticut, which had somehow fallen into some type of dissuetude that was never enforced or anything like that. No, this was a law which was rigorously enforced and it meant that it was very difficult to well, obtain contraceptives. Well, one of the things that struck me about the judgment was that Mrs. McGee's own GP had given her an interunitarine device and some spermicidal jelly himself. Mm. And that's almost uncommented on by the judges. They don't sort of say he had acted in a manner that was criminal or unconstitutional. They just sort of mentioned that this happened, but then she had to go and import her own yes. separately. So, it, I mean, clearly th there was a certain sense in which the law was overlooked in that it was possible for a GP at the time to provide such services. I'm sure, because strictly the ban was on importation. It was not on use. And that was one of the things that the Chief Justice at the time, William Fitzgerald, said in his dissent. It's not, unlike Griswold, it's not a prohibition on use. It's only on importation. But as the majority said, well, that's a difference really of form. In substance, sure. it is aimed at a complete ban. And while complete legal bans are never totally effective, uh, this one was nonetheless pretty effective. And the point I'm simply making is, is that uh, this was part of the public policy of the state. And prior to McGee, it did not look as if it was going to change anytime soon. Okay. So the matter gets into the Supreme Court. As we say, we had a definitive decision in the High Court. It's appealed to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court has to take a look at this. Mm. 
and it has to take a different sort of approach. Mm. And we various different uh, new approaches to the interpretation of the Constitution emerge as a result of that. Will you take us through those? Yeah, in some ways, you know, McGee, which I consider probably in terms of political consequences and social consequences, was the single most important decision ever given in the almost now 100-year history of the Supreme Court. And it's pretty important in terms of constitutional law as well. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, the quality of the majority judgments is really impressive. Uh, And some of the most eloquent passages in if you like, the lexicon of our constitutional law are to be found in the judgments of Mr. Justice Walsh and Mr. Justice Henshey in particular. But all four judgments were really impressive. And in essence, you know, they all focused on slightly different things. And you could argue the extent to which this was, if you like, a so-called unenumerated rights case. It's often cited as an unenumerated rights case. And just for your listeners, unenumerated rights doctrine is the idea first developed in the Ryan case in 1963, 64, 65, that uh, the, when Article 40 of the Constitution referred to the state's obligation to protect personal rights, there was a category of rights not expressly mentioned elsewhere in the Constitution but impliedly guaranteed thereby. And one of the examples given in the Ryan case was, say, the right to travel within the state or the right to marry. I mean, those are not as such mentioned in the Constitution. But I mean, I would argue, for example, in the case of, say, the right to marry, that Article 41, and even before you had marriage equality, but Article 41, with this reference to the institution of marriage, would be meaningless unless there was a right to marry a constitutionally protected. So I, I think what you can say about all four judgments is they all differ. You know, there's slight differences between them, but essentially they focus on the autonomy of the family. That's particularly uh, Mr. Justice Walsh's judgment, in our, which is based or derivatively based from Article 41 dealing with the family and based on his understanding of Article 41 and the established case law, that would mean that was a right of a married couple to make a decision. Yes. Um, Mr. Justice Henshey's judgment has a slightly different focus. It focuses on, if you like, the the privacy of the individual, the fact that it was such a far-reaching intrusion into her private life. She'd be forced to disclose her medical history. And the focus really essentially was on Mrs. McGee, her personal autonomy, her personal autonomy in terms of uh, making decisions about her own medical welfare and the integrity of her marital relations with her husband. I mean, though that was the focus of, of Mr. Justice Henshey's judgment, and it finishes with, you know, a fantastic philippic uh, of a denunciation of the section, um, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. But in terms of, you know, majestic legal writing, I mean, it's like the crescendo. It finishes like the crescendo of a symphony with, you know, sort of every player in the orchestra, so to speak, playing at full pitch. And I mean, he manages that. He brings off this magnificent peroration at the end, denouncing the section as uh, such a far-reaching interference with with Mrs. McGee's constitutional rights. You have a shorter judgment from um, Mr. Justice Budd, which focuses on the fact that 
you know, this was an invasion of the right to privacy, and the privacy was a key feature of married life. Uh, and then Mr. Justice Griffin's judgment draws a lot on the U.S. Supreme Court decision in uh, in Griswold. And while Judge Walsh and Judge Henry mentioned Griswold in passing, they don't really place any emphasis on it. But Judge Griffin does and has quotes from um, Mr. Justice Douglas in in Griswold saying, you know, that marriage is, an, is a venerable institution and would we allow, if you like, the state to enter the bedroom and look for telltale signs of the use of contraceptives and so on. And that was so repugnant to our idea of of of, you know, ordered society that was found unconstitutional. Now, there is a savour in Judge Griffin's judgment, which I suppose reflects the far-reaching nature of this decision. He said it didn't apply to abortifacients. He was only applying to contraceptives yes. as such. And I suppose we should we should give a mention to the Chief Justice, William, William Fitzgerald, who was the dissenter. Yeah, he, he was, was the, the dissenter. One, he basically yeah. said that, you know, the couple in question should show some fortitude, I yeah, think was must, his phrase, and yeah, offer they, it up, I suppose. Yes, Is that what we used to, uh, yes, used to have to do yes, in the good old days? Yes, offer it up. Um, I suppose he said they, but he had some elegant phrase that they they must face this dilemma with such fortitude as they should muster. Uh, he also made the point that it didn't ban contraceptives as such. Uh, sorry, sorry, it didn't ban the use of them. It, the statute only banned the importation of contraceptives. It was a short judgment and... He said, really, it's beyond the capacity of the, this is a matter for the Oireachtas, not the judiciary. But it is probably more reflective than the majority decisions of the island of the day or the island that, that we were emerging from, where the, the position of the state was that, that contraception should not be imported, that, the, that you know, he, he was standing for, for a status quo that was broadly accepted by the majority at that stage. Yeah, um, uh, absolutely, uh, Mark. Um, so can I make just two observations about that? First is some very interesting work has been done by Dermot Ferriter and Finola Kennedy and others. Finola Kennedy's book, From Cottage to Crash, is a book that I would really recommend uh, in terms of understanding the background to the 1935 Act and some of the social policies directed at the family and sexuality and so the, the role of women at that period. So it's a really great book. But it emerges from their analysis is that, you know, Section 17 of the 1935 Act had never really been recommended by any of the reports which have been prepared up to that point. There was this report prepared by the so-called Carrigan Report. I'm not going to delay on this, but just just for a put put this into context, there was a report produced by um, a senior counsel called Carrigan. He was tasked to investigate the adequacy of the existing law dealing with sexual offences, and he had a number of lawyers. He had a number of uh, medics. He had a, a number of clerics from both. Roman Catholic and Church of Ireland on the committee. Anyway, they concluded, incidentally, in a very far-sighted way, that the existing law dealing with sexual offences was wholly inadequate and gave inadequate protection to the victims of sexual crime. Now, that was not accepted by the Department of Justice and the Minister of Justice, James Gagan, who thought it was uh, an exaggeration. And, sorry, what year was the Carrigan the Report? The Carrigan Report came... 1932 to 1933. Sorry, it was commissioned by the Cumna Gael government and it landed on the desk of the incoming Fianna Fáil administration, James Gagan being the new Minister for Justice. Uh, and he was sceptical about it and he felt that um, Carrigan had overstated the risks 
and the nature of the problem. But in fact, Carrigan was very far-sighted. But what's interesting about the Carrigan report in, in relation to this is that they expressly recommended against a ban on the importation of contraceptives, saying that it was too far-reaching an interference with personal liberty. And it's interesting, as the measure went through the Oireachtas, contrary perhaps to the impression given by Andres O'Keeve in his judge in the High Court, but at earlier stages in the 34-35, actually the Shannad had voted against this proposal to ban contraceptives. And uh, there is an, a joint Oireachtas committee involving members of the Doyle and the Shannon dealing with this very issue. And one of the most impressive but uncelebrated Doyle deputies ever, Deputy Rowlett, who represented Trinity College, but he was a medical doctor, and his interventions both on the Constitution and on the 1935 Act are really so, so impressive. But he said, um, you know, I've had a personal experience of this as a GP. And while he said he didn't condone what, you know, what he regarded as, to use a very old-fashioned phrase, fornication and so on, when he didn't support that, he said that he had come across many cases of where, of precisely the same problem yes. that would emerge with Mary McGee's case. But I mean, one of the points that's made in the, the Supreme Court judgment is the fact that the 1935 Act does not say it's to prevent birth control, but it's for the suppression of vice. Exactly, that? so that's the, in the long title. Yeah. So, so presumably the idea is not to prevent married couples engaging in yeah. birth control, but to stop unmarried couples engaging in what would then be called fornication. Or Well, yes and no, Mark. The 1935 Act was principally the legislative response to the Carrigan Report, and it dealt with a whole range of sexual offences. Most notably, it's Section 1 and Section 2 of the 35 Act, both of which, incidentally, have been found unconstitutional because of the fact that they created absolute offences uh, for unlawful car- carnal knowledge. Therein lies another story. But, we'll have to have you back again. <laughs> but, but, but at the last minute the Department of Justice was instructed that an informal decision had been taken at government level following the urgings of the Minister for Health, namely uh, Sean T. O'Kelly, that there should be an equivalent of Section 17. So Section 17 was, so to speak, inserted almost at the last minute as the matter went through the Oireachtas. But there certainly, if you look at the Shannon debates, proposals to ban it had been defeated and defeated for the very reasons given, A, in the Carrigan Report, which the Department of Justice incidentally never published at the time, and but B, because of the kind of reasons given by Deputy Roulette. Can I bring you back to, again, December 1973, this decision was issued. Mm. Now, let's look at it in the macro level. Mm. I mean, you said it was a surprise. Mm. I mean, you've also described it in when you've written about this as, to use Churchillian language, you know, the Supreme Court's finest hour. Yeah. And you say that politically, you believe it is the most significant decision, maybe not constitutionally, but p- politically, in terms of setting Ireland on a different course. Yes. Will, will you just set that context out for me, please? Well, because up to that point, you know, this is an Ireland which had really very little toleration for laws or practices which did not accord with the moral instincts of the majority and the majority Catholic Church. So this was, in a sense, the first breach of the uniform 
Catholicity uh, of the state's laws and practices, especially in relation to sexual matters. I mean, had McGee not arrived... It was the start of a new era, really. It, it was the start of a new era. John Charles McQuaid. It was a different Ireland, really. It was a completely different Ireland. Yes. Um, um, all right, the, the so-called special position clause had been deleted by the Fifth Amendment in December 1972, but that was really a symbolic rather than a practical change. Uh, but McGee was a seismic decision, and it was one which was possibly the most significant. Um, it occupied a huge amount of political energy in terms of social legislation throughout the 1970s. It was a dominant topic of conversation. Okay, well, we're going to move on to 1983 and the Norris decision, and we're going to take it further. But just to finish this part, because we're coming back for part two, just there is a a conference being held in Trinity College on the 2nd of December on the McGee case to mark the 50th anniversary of the McGee case. Well, I mean, I think that, uh, firstly, it's great that this is happening, and it's great that Mary McGee herself, who is, you know, very much with us, uh, is being marked in this way. And it was a tremendous act of bravery as an individual litigant to do this. And, you know, it shouldn't be forgotten that there was a lot of other brave litigants at the time, mainly women, uh, who came forward and uh, had successful constitutional challenges, which tend to be forgotten now. Um, so, for example, Maureen de Burke and Mary Anderson he's won. He's sitting on juries in December 1975, holding that the Juries Act of 1927 was unconstitutional. And then Mary Murphy in January 1980, the so-called Married Women's Tax Case, holding that the discrimination against married couples where both spouses worked outside the home uh, was unconstitutional. And those were seismic changes which affected Irish society and they have left long-term consequences which are still being played out today in terms of the, the, the fuse almost of a sort of a sexual revolution in Ireland or, not, or, or certainly so, a revolution. So that our summer of love? Uh, well, our winter whatever, of love. Winter of love, maybe. Our Christmas but, of love. But whatever about that, it laid the groundwork for you know, a profoundly changed Ireland. And uh, the other cases, de Burke and Murphy, you know, were themselves quite significant achievements in terms of the movement towards greater female equality. Okay, well, we're going to move on and we go to the 1983 when we come back next week and the Norris case, which seemed to be initially a bit of a rollback, yeah. Uh, yeah. I would have thought. Peter, I did say there was one little story I was Yes, please, tell, please, please, uh, please. Which is this, is I can't vouch for it, but I am told authoritatively that when Niall Sinjin McCarthy, later judge of the Supreme Court, very famous judge of the Supreme Court in 1982 before he sadly died in a road traffic accident in Spain in um, in 1992, he was counsel for the state. And he is said to have rung up the then Attorney General, Declan Costello, and with the imparting the bad news, so to speak, that the state had lost. And he was pleasantly surprised to be told uh, that the Attorney General was so far from being uh, disconsolate, the state losing, said, Good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's excellent. Okay, we're going to leave it there, folks. Stay tuned next week. Come back to us next week for the second part of this interview. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week.
Okay, that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Mr. Justice Gerard Hogan, and make sure you tune in next week for the second part of the interview. Mark, we already know what the learned judge has said. Tune in next week. Absolutely, folks. I think it'll be worth your while. Oh, big time. It'll be worth your while. But we're going to leave it for today. And before we go, I'd like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moran, for all his help in preparing this podcast. And also to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for doing a wonderful job in recording this show. And can I give a big shout out to Neil Horner, who does a bit of editing for us every now and again. Neil does a brilliant job. And I just want to acknowledge that. Fair play to you, Neil. You're top man. So for me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Dalton. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.